a new microphone. Yeah, the old one was like 40 years old. St. <laughs> Agnes, it's like the man prayer. We can change if we have to, I guess. <laughs> In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, on this vigil of the Feast of the Solemnity of St. Joseph, we ask you, Lord, to help all of us to protect the mystery of the Incarnation and the Immaculate Conception that has been entrusted to us. Help us to honor and revere our Blessed Virgin Mary, and of course, allow her to point us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we always be unafraid of following God's holy will and passing on the great mysteries of the faith to the next generation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And there's someone I've been forgetting to honor and recognize. Brandon Wattless has been the, the genius behind uh, all of the hard work and the planning and the details and knowing who to invite. So please allow me to thank our adult education coordinator, Brandon Wattless. He's a teacher of theology in our uh, high school, and he's doing a wonderful job. I have the great honor to first introduce uh, Dr. Gardner. Right before that, there's always a little business. As you know, we are continuing our, our Lenten series, Lenten lecture series on Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. As I mentioned before, there is no homework required. I mean, come on, it's getting better than that. Uh, however, we hope that you are inspired to want to read more from Dante. Uh, please note the restrooms are handicap accessible one through the chapel off of the elevator and then the other restrooms are on the second level of the hall in the back kind of on the north side and northwest side. Dr. Gardner, Dr. Patrick Gardner is a tutor and assistant dean for student affairs at Thomas Aquinas College at the New England campus in Massachusetts. He's previously taught at the University of Notre Dame and the University of Texas. After graduating from Harvard University, it's one of those little Holly League, I'm oh, sorry, Ivy League. Well, I've got the microphone, I'm going to make you speak harder. I received his master's and PhD in medieval studies from Notre Dame. He is currently in, I'm sorry, an ordinary member of the Sacra Doctrina Project. Dr. Gardner is an expert at Dante and has lectured and published on the theology, poetry, and philosophy of Dante. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Gardner as he offers our third lecture on Dante's Inferno, Lower Hell. Thank you, Father Moriarty. Thank you, Brandon. Really honored to be here. Such an honor to be asked to speak on Lower Hell. <laughs> really shows what you think of me. Um, so, a lot of terrain to cover. Canto 11 of the Inferno. Now, that's, that's not part of my charge tonight. You covered that with Dr. Kathy uh, Devil, I think, last lecture. Um, my charge is the second half of the Inferno, the last 17 cantos. That's what I'm going to call lower hell. But it's in Canto 11 that we're given the key to the division of hell in Dante's own words. So I'm going to begin there so as to give some meaning to the term lower hell and some reason to treat it on its own. 
In another way, this is a good canto, canto 11, to prepare us for lower hell, because it shows us a side of the powers of our poet, Dante, that we might not have seen so clearly to this point. But we'll be more regularly on display the further we descend. I want you to note how he incorporates what you might call necessary exposition into the narrative. You can always tell a bad movie when exposition is not well fit into the narrative. Well, this is how Dante does it. As he and Virgil approach the edge of the sixth circle where the heretics lie in open flaming tombs, they are walloped by, and I quote, the overwhelming stink belched up out of the depths of the abyss coming from the lower three circles. They have to draw back and take shelter until their noses get inured to the stench. They find a slab of rock to use as a screen, and this just turns out, incidentally, to be the tombstone of what Dante thinks was a heretical pope. This is how the scene is drawn for Virgil to give a placid university lecture, <laughs> calling on Cicero and Aristotle and making some careful philosophical distinctions until everything about the division of hell is clear to his pupil while they're getting used to the stench. The poet who did that had a wicked sense of humor. Um, maybe to put it more exactly, the poet who did that has a very keen sense of irony, of parody, of the incongruous, and the grotesque, and he's ready to deploy them right alongside great learning. There's something fitting in wielding that sort of poetry in lower hell, as I hope we'll see, but in any case, the reader should brace himself. So what does Virgil tell us in Canto 11? So at that point, he and Dante have passed five circles already. The first circle was limbo, so they've passed four kinds of sin, lust, gluttony, avarice, and wrath. After that, the pilgrim and his guide had to pass the harrowing walls of a city, the city of Dis, Dis being another name for Satan. So Virgil tells us here the reason that four sins were higher up outside the walls of the city and with lesser penalties. They are all sins of incontinence, that is, a lack of self-control. There's nothing light about being damned in any circle. We're still talking about mortal sins throughout. Yet, Virgil says, these sins, the sins outside the city, offend God less and are taxed with lesser blame. Lesser than what? Then malice, malizia, which merits the hate of God because it aims at injury or injustice. Incontinence does what is evil through lack of control in pursuing some good, the good of food, of sex, or of money, but malice aims to hurt. That is why it is within the walls. But, Virgil goes on, malicious injury can be done in two ways, by force or fraud. Force or violence is punished in the seventh circle with its three rings, and that you've already passed if you came to the previous lecture. But, Virgil says, since fraud's a sin peculiar to mankind, God hates it more. And so the fraudulent sink farther down, assailed by greater pain. Now, there are only two circles left. There are nine circles altogether. 
So the two circles further down are the eighth and ninth. Both are for fraud. A little later, we'll get to the difference between the eighth and ninth. But what I want to call your attention to now is the fact that the last part of this division of hell, incontinence, violence, and fraud, which includes only the last two circles out of nine in the structure of hell, takes up fully half of the text of the Inferno, 17 out of 34 contos. It's for that reason that I wish, wish to treat it tonight as lower hell, although some use that term for everything within the city. Why is fraud the worst of sins? And why do these two circles take up so much more of the poem? I think these questions are connected, and I think they are probably the two basic structural questions that every reader of the second half of the Inferno will have. So I hope tonight to give you something worth thinking about for each of them. Um, I want to second what Father Moriarty said. My aim is to lead you back to the book. Um, I, I'm from TAC, we're a great books college. I usually don't even have to lecture, I just ask a question of students who have read a book and then they talk about it for an hour. <laughs> I will do the talking here, but my aim is only to lead you back to Dante. I should qualify that I don't aim to justify for you every single part of the order and division of lower hell, to argue that every single sin that's lower down is worse than every sin that has come before. There are some comparisons that I would find hard to justify. Uh, homicide versus theft. I will not follow Dante against St. Thomas as a rule. Um, but then I'm also far from certain that we're always comparing uh, bad apples to bad apples. That Thomas and Dante mean the same thing when they're talking about theft. But in any case, my aim is more general. I want to ask more generally, can we even understand Virgil when he says that fraud is the worst of sins? Can we see how it is possible for at least some forms of fraud to be worse than murder? And what it means to say that fraud is peculiar to mankind? With that, I think St. Thomas would agree. If it's not easy for us to see that, that, then it's a good reason for us to go on this journey. The work that the journey through lower hell might do in us is to make us hate the abuse of reason, of thought and speech, as literally the worst thing in the world, because it is the best thing in the world turned against the world's maker and redeemer. That's the thesis. But at the same time, as was hinted at in Canto 11, the way in which Dante will bring home the abuse of reason to us is not plain speaking, but a growing poetic bravura showing off in manipulation of words and imagination full of irony, sarcasm, double meaning, hidden references, and terrible juxtapositions. So Dante is walking kind of a fine line here, and I think he knows it. The old saying is that poets tell many a tale, that is, many a lie. And here he is denouncing deceptions by means of all sorts of fantastic inventions of his own. What keeps this from descending into a sort of 
game, a bluffer's game, is the fact that at the core is faith and repentance. Dante's own first presented to us for the sake of our own. I think that should be a first principle of reading the Commedia. If not, there's a danger. It's very tempting, actually, to begin to read the Inferno for mere fascination with the various punishments, with who ends up where, and with the poet's marvelous devices for their own sake. If we fall into that, I think it would be better to stop reading. <laughs> we must not forget that the Inferno begins in a dark wood and a dark night of the soul for Dante. He is being shown these things so that he might be saved. All right. The descent to fraud in the eighth circle. Picking up at the edge of the seventh circle, the circle of violence. And when Dante and Virgil approach the point of entry to the realm of fraud, we can see how great a descent this is in evil, physically, in the means of transportation. The two travelers cannot make this transition by their own power because at the edge of the seventh circle is a precipitous drop. They must summon Gerion, a strange beast that Dante has taken up from classical sources and wrought into what he calls a foul image of fraud the beast whose stench fills all the world. It's a sort of flying or floating creature with the face of a just man, the paws of a lion, and all the rest of him, the trunk and barbed tail of a serpent or dragon. Virgil and Dante have to get on his back. And riding on his back, they descend eerily in great circles through a sheer fall and are left at the bottom while Gerion vanishes like the arrow on the string. This, when Gerion sets them down, is the exact midpoint of the text of the Inferno. And the next line, the beginning of Canto 18, signals to us that we're at a new beginning, sort of a new hell. There is a place in hell called Malabolge. The Eighth Circle has its own name, Malabolge. That means evil pouches or evil ditches. These ditches are the ten concentric rings into which the eighth circle is divided, divided by stone embankments. Dante compares them to how the defenders of a city's walls dig trench on trench about the fortress. Though we might reflect that these are not made to keep anyone out. And then the whole is sloping downwards, these ten concentric circles, sloping downwards towards the central pit with bridges like spokes reaching across the circular embankments. I hope you can picture that. Each pouch contains a distinct form of fraud. Ten types of fraud. And that's only in the eighth circle. In the ninth circle, we'll have a new depth of fraud with four divisions of its own. Why so many? Well. Let's scan over what we will encounter here in the Eighth Circle in order. In the first pouch, pimps and seducers. In the second, flatterers. Then, simonists. If that term is unfamiliar, just hang on for a bit. Diviners or astrologers or fortune tellers. Bribers and bribe takers. Hypocrites. Thieves. 
evil counselors, schismatics or sowers of discord, and falsifiers. I think the experience of these groups will tell us, even before we have any theoretical explanation, that this is a fact. These are different sorts of sin and of sinners. They fit different types, different character types. And yet they all have something in common. The corruption of human relations in a manner that can only be accomplished by reason. Let's take the first pouch as an example. Their sin is connected with sex. But we've already been through the circle of the lustful. That was the first of the circles in which a sin was punished, the lightest, according to Dante. According to Dante, he was Italian and a poet. But, um, but how far we are now from Paolo and Francesca, the most famous uh, representatives of the lustful, they were damned, well, because they couldn't keep their hands off each other. That seems almost healthy by comparison with what we have here, the pimps and seducers who push another person into bed for gain or ply another person into bed by lies. This is not just a sin of lust. So on the one hand, the role of reason makes this sin quite different from the sin of merely yielding to the passion underneath. On the other hand, it's clear enough that this particular abuse of human relations through reason is a very different matter from astrology or theft or sowing discord. Because of the particular sort of disorder that reason introduces when man aims to manipulate sexual relations for gain. That's the power of reason to multiply kinds of sin. So from this and recalling Virgil's words from Canto 11, we can begin to glean something of a theoretical explanation for the manifold division of lower hell. Again, Virgil said, fraud's a sin peculiar to mankind. That's our key. It belongs to the lesser sins to be simpler. There are only so many basic passions for men to give themselves over to. They're passions that we share with the animals. Of course, animals cannot sin. In some sense, all sin is peculiar to mankind. But when a man sins by incontinence or violence, what he does in sinning is the sort of thing that an animal could do. What makes a man a man is the fact that he has reason. And what makes fraud the sin peculiar to mankind is that it is sinning by reason, using reason precisely in order to do harm. The proper work of reason is to put things in order. And so the types of sin that can come from the abuse of reason are as many as the different disorders that can be wrought among chief human goods. But to see this more clearly, I want to look more closely at a few scenes. As Brandon Wanless suggested to me, taking a, a deep dive into a few parts. But as I thought about it, I don't like using that phrase about lower hell. <laughs> um, but here I go. Um, first dive. Canto 18. Sorry. Canto 19, the first canto of Malabolge, Canto 18, as I just mentioned, takes us through the first two ditches, pimps and seducers and flatterers, and it leaves us on the verge of the third. 
Canto 19 has another stirring beginning. This time it's an invective. Oh, Simon Magus, you wretched crew of his disciples. Dante is referring to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. The apostles had been baptizing in Samaria, and a man there named Simon, who had previously been a practitioner of magic, black arts, thus Simon Magus, converted. That is, Acts tells us that he himself believed and was baptized. But he saw Peter and John laying hands on the converts that they might receive the Holy Spirit, sacrament of confirmation. Acts reads, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power. But Peter said to him, Your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. So Simon ends up giving his name to all those men of the church over the centuries who have sought to put the gift of God, that is, the spiritual goods and benefices given over to their care, to temporal gain. And in Dante's time, when the church in Europe was deeply enmeshed in political affairs, the poet saw many deserving his own petrine condemnation in this canto. Quote, The things of God should be espoused to righteousness and love, and you rapacious wolves, you pander them for gold. This is the denunciation with which Dante begins the canto. He then says, O oh, highest wisdom, how much art you show in heaven, on earth, and in the evil world. How justly does your power apportion all. Dante praises the divine wisdom for the art of the punishment he is about to describe. We can hardly ignore the fact that he is also praising his own art. But artful indeed it is. The, the concave, rocky interior of this pouch, this bolgia, is pockmarked, covered sides and bottom with neat, round holes, just the size, the poet says, of the baptismal fonts in his own beloved church in Florence, San Giovanni. These were taller and narrower, more cylindrical than the baptismal fonts that I think we're used to. Um, certainly compared to the, the wonderful font in the cathedral here, which I got to see earlier today. So Dante sees these holes, which he compares to the openings of baptismal fonts, all over the bottom and sides of the ditch. And he says, out of the mouth of every hole there stuck a sinner's feet and legs. The Simonists, the churchmen who took the name of Simon Magus, or have that name put upon them, are buried head downwards, and on the soles of their feet fire dances, Dante says, as flame upon a thing anointed, and the legs writhe and kick. Dante sees one with a redder flame than most, and descending, he stands by the hole to talk to this sinner, but because the sinner is head downward, he has to lean over, and he says he's leaning over like a friar who hears the sins of a faithless assassin about to be executed. 
So before we even hear a word from the sinner, know anything about who he is or what he did, notice how thick with ironic meaning the scene has already become. The holes like baptismal fonts, the appearance of being anointed with oil, tongues of fire, but both of these on the bottom of the feet rather than on the top of the head. And Dante, in the position of the confessor, the confessor to, as we will find out, a pope. It's a sacramental smorgasbord, only everything is horribly inverted. The damned soul who cannot see who has addressed him speaks. Are you standing there already, Boniface? Are you standing there already, Boniface? The writing has deceived me by some years. This soul, we will shortly learn, belonged to Pope Nicholas III, who admits to Dante that he was so eager to advance his cubs, that is, to give church offices and benefices to his own relations, that on earth he stashed great wealth, and therefore now, in the afterlife, he stashes himself. But he mistook Dante's identity. He thought he was Boniface. Through his confusion, he ends up condemning this Boniface even more than himself. This is Pope Boniface VIII. Now Nicholas, because in Dante's afterlife, the damned are granted some knowledge of the future, Nicholas knows that Boniface VIII will be coming to this same spot in hell as another Simonist pope, but he doesn't expect him for another three years, hence the confusion. That is to say, Dante, who is writing this after Boniface's death in 1303, but sets the action of the poem in 1300, assures us of Boniface's damnation in advance. The vigor, length, and bitterness of Dante's condemnation here are not exceeded by any in a poem that's full of condemnations. There are a lot of reasons for that. But I think our chief goal as readers should be to grasp why Dante sees this as so evil, not to dwell with morbid curiosity on the state of Boniface's soul. And one way to do that is to do what Dante has invited us to do by the placement, by the structure of hell, that is to consider simony as an act of fraud, as an abuse of reason corrupting human relations. Oh, tell me, Dante asks Nicholas rhetorically, how much treasure did our Lord want out of St. Peter before he placed the keys in his authority? Likely no one needs to be convinced that what has been reported of Nicholas and Boniface, for a pope to make himself and his family rich by distributing cardinals' hats and benefices to that end, or to buy his way into the papacy, which was alleged of Boniface, is very wrong. But do we see why? Although these men were clearly driven by avarice, we have taken a deep dive down in hell from where mere avarice was punished back up in the fourth circle. Focus again on the role of reason here. 
That is the whole corruption, what turns a mere misdeed into a pestilence. To bestow offices, to choose cardinals, assign bishoprics, of course, this is not just the Pope's right, but his duty. For a wealthy Catholic to give of his wealth to the church is not just his right, but his duty. And that's all that was done externally. Money was given and an office was bestowed. The proper work of reason is to order. It is only reason that can say this is for that. This money is for that office. And by so doing, it can wreak ruin that no mere external act, no mere avarice indeed, can accomplish. It turns the sinner against God much more than the mere unchecked desire for wealth. In his this for that, the Simonist declares that he knows better than God, who in Christ asked for nothing from the apostles but that they follow him. He cheapens spiritual goods immeasurably by the attempt to put any price on them, and his sin has much wider effect. For as Dante says to Nicholas, the world is made dismal by your greed, raising the crooked, trampling down the good. This is what fraud can do. Under a Simonist pope, those with money can get influence in the church, and holier men cannot. A fraud is practiced on the world that has a right to expect, unless it is already jaded, that men are chosen for those offices in order to be good shepherds of the flock. This is indeed far worse than mere avarice, because it is more human. Now let's dive a little deeper, leaving behind simony, although not, as we will see, leaving behind one of the principal characters in that drama. I'm going to pass over, after the simonists, the diviners or fortune tellers or sorcerers in the fourth ditch, the grafters, the bribe givers and the bribe takers in the fifth, the hypocrites in the sixth, the thieves in the seventh, to stop at the eighth ditch. Dante opens the scene before us with another stunning image. Imagine him standing on the stone embankment, looking down into a, a dark and hazy ditch. He says, but as a peasant resting on a hill in that warm time of year, when he who sheds light on the world hides less than usual, when the mosquito follows on the fly, sees crowds of fireflies in the twilight dell, down by the vineyard or the fields he's tilled, with just so many flickering firelights shone the eighth pouch, as I was aware as soon as I could see the bottom of the pit. It's a marvelous image. He compares coming into view of these flames down in the dark pit to a peasant looking down into the valley at night and seeing the fireflies light up. It's such a, a calm and bucolic image. But what are we looking at? <laughs> these flickering lights wandering about the bottom of the pit as Dante stares more intently turn out to be each a sinner entirely clothed in flame. There's also one double fire forked at the top which Virgil reveals as the flame that tortures Ulysses and Diomedes, for they bemoan their ambush in that flame, their wooden horse in Troy. 
So we gather that the sort of fraud punished here is what we first mean by the word fraud, deception, trickery. Now, the first famous episode in this pouch is the encounter with Ulysses, Homer's man of many ways, resourceful Odysseus. And Dante's rewriting of the end of that story is indeed fascinating, but I will leave that to your own study as a tease. Um, to focus on the second sinner with whom Dante speaks in Canto 27. This one approaches in a flame that emits a strange garbled noise at first, as if the fire itself were in pain, until the words find a way out at the tip. Dante compares this noise to the story of the Sicilian bull. This is an instrument of torture that the clever Athenian craftsman Perillus constructed for the tyrant Phalaris, was sort of famous for his cruelty. It was a brazen, hollow bull made to be set over a fire with a victim trapped within. And it was so devised that the cries of the victim being roasted would be transformed into the sound of a bellowing bull as it came out. And it worked, as Phalaris learned as soon as it was done, by having the craftsman Perillus himself made its first victim. In any case, once the speech becomes intelligible, we find that within this flame stands a contemporary of Dante's, a fellow Italian. His name is not mentioned in the poem, but his story would, be, would make him immediately recognizable to Dante's readers, Guido da Montefeltro. Not a household name to us. Um, Guido was a general of the Ghibellines, one of the great parties in the on-again, off-again civil war that dominated the political life of Italy and southern Europe throughout Dante's lifetime. But Guido tells us, with astounding brevity, just what he was. Here are his words. I was a man of arms, then wore the cord of a lay friar, thinking to make amends. He spent most of his life as a military man, but not at the front lines. Again, he says, all my actions were not those that mark the lion, but the fox. Clever expedients and covered ways, I worked them all so artfully, my fame resounded at the limits of the earth. But in old age, the even tide of life, when a man needs to think more of the life to come, he tells us he confessed, repented, and became a Franciscan tertiary. And he says, all would have been well. That is, he thinks, he would not be here now had not the great priest, may he be dragged to hell, not pitched me back into my former faults. This great priest, we will learn, is once again Pope Boniface VIII, who was engaged in fighting with both excommunications and armed forces, a faction which had rejected his ascension to the papacy after the abdication of his predecessor, Celestine V. Although Guido had at this point retired and taken on the friar's cord, the pope called upon him for advice. He wanted a stratagem against his enemies, such as Guido was once famous for. When Guido hesitates to return to practices he has already had to confess, the pope presses him. These are the words of Pope Boniface as Guido reports them. Let not your heart be troubled. In advance, I will absolve you. Show me what to do to batter Palestrina to the ground. I hold the power to bar and unbar heaven, you know. 
Eventually, Guido is persuaded. Father, because you cleanse me of that sin into which I am falling, he gives the advice by which Boniface destroys his enemies. Be long on promises and short on keeping them. The immediate sequel is the scene which closes Guido's story. It's bothered some readers. I think it's also amused some readers. Guido continues, The day I died, St. Francis came for me. But one of the black angels said to him, Don't cheat me now, don't carry him away. This one belongs with all my slaves down there, because he gave his counsel to defraud. Since then, I've itched to snatch him by the hair. One who does not repent can't be absolved, nor can a man repent and will at once. The law of contradiction rules it out. Ah, sorrow, says Guido, when I woke to my position and heard him say as he grabbed hold, perhaps you hadn't thought that I was a logician. It's okay to laugh at this. <laughs> the devil knows logic. Um, I trust Dante did not intend any implication about whether St. Francis knows logic. <laughs> and it would be rank anachronism to call what Boniface and Guido did Jesuitical. <laughs> but when we, I'm a third order Dominican. <clears throat> but when we look at the tale as a whole, uh, it must seem terribly tragic, and Guido pitiable. And it may seem to heap more coals upon Boniface's head than Guido's. The latter freely admits that what he did was wrong, but was he not pressured by one who had great power over him? Isn't the greater fault Boniface's? Well, let's read this again more carefully. And in what follows, I'm wholly dependent on an old teacher of mine who first introduced me to Dante, Lino Pertile. Let's look again at all that Guido told us with a more critical eye, because we have been warned that he is here in hell as a fraudulent counselor. Should we not be careful at how we accept his words? He was, as he says with some pride, a fox, a clever planner, full of strategy. Then late in life, did he really convert and repent? Doesn't he speak of this as if it were just another stratagem? in a grand campaign of life. I was a man of arms, then wore the cord. That was his plan. <laughs> Doing at each stage just what was calculated to get results. Clever expedients and covered ways, not excluding the cover of a friar's habit and cord. If we suppose for a moment that his becoming a Franciscan tertiary was not a true conversion at heart, but a calculated move, so that he could have worldly advantage in this life and salvation in the next. See what light this casts on his interview with Boniface that he has reported to us. He puts all blame on the Pope. He, Guido says, pitched me back into my former faults. He, the Pope to whom I owed obedience, made me the offer. He invoked his Petrine authority. This seems a very good excuse. But what Boniface offered was that Guido could bank upon exactly the same sort of calculation he has betrayed to us, or even bragged to us, was writ large in his life. 
Sin now with the confidence that it won't keep you from heaven because you've made a clever deal. Does this not make more intelligible how a man famed for his cleverness could fall for such a patent trap? In advance, I will absolve you. In this light, Guido's story is not just about one last deception that he advised, the counsel to Boniface to commit fraud. His whole story is rife with deception. He rings a false note right at the very beginning of his tale. This is right after Dante has asked him to tell it. And you may recognize these verses even if you haven't read this canto because they are the epigraph to T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. If I believed that my response was heard by anyone returning to the world, this flame would stand and never stir again. But since no man has ever come alive out of this gulf of hell, if I hear true, I'll answer with no fear of infamy. That's what Guido says to Dante, who, of course, will come alive out of this gulf of hell. He has deceived himself most completely. He makes a careful calculation to get exactly the wrong answer, like forgetting the minus sign at the end. It's in that delightful British phrase, it's, it's an absolute howler of a mistake. <laughs> and notice, I nod once more to the brilliance of Lino Pertile, as well as that of our poet. Notice how Dante has, in the scene, recapitulated the story of the Sicilian bull that he used at the beginning, where it seemed like just a grandiose way to express that the flame made a strange garbled noise, a flourish. A clever subordinate presents a tyrant with an instrument of harm. And the tyrant, who is not a good man, but who in this case does something sort of just, makes him, the clever subordinate, the first victim. That was the story of the Sicilian bull. Sicilian bull. This is what Boniface does to Guido. Guido advises Boniface to promise more than he will deliver. And Boniface does exactly that to Guido. So what, in the end, is Guido being punished for? And why is it so grave? There's no difficulty in seeing how he is a perpetrator of fraud. That's exactly what he claims to have advised. And his advice is nothing new. Promise more than you intend to deliver. That it is old and obvious does not prevent it from being very poisonous advice. Everyone knows from an early age at some level that he can take advantage of a person in this way, promise more than you plan to deliver. And in all sorts of ways, no doubt it's been going on all the time ever since the serpent's promise to Eve, which was also a promise of that sort. You will be like God's. And we can see a couple of centuries after Dante in Machiavelli how perniciously influential that one can be who has the boldness and the wise-seeming jaded air to turn this into, as we would now speak, a philosophy for princes who is so frank and open about the advice to get ahead by fraud. While the corruption involved in this form of fraud might be more hidden than with the Simonists, by the same token, it is also more naked fraud, more unadulterated. 
The aim is no longer even to gain by a disordered exchange of goods arranged by reason, but to gain by disordering our first and most characteristic act as reasonable beings, speech. That's the most obvious and ubiquitous feature of our having reason. We can convey our thoughts and intentions by words. And that is what fraud, unadulterated, disorders. It's as old and obvious as the devil. Guido presents himself as a type that we probably know from the movies as sympathetic. The criminal who really tried to reform was becoming a better man, but got pulled back in for one last job. That's how he presents it. When we read between the lines, it seems rather that he went from bad to worse. He graduated from using craft and deceit in military matters to the sort of deceit that corrupts political relations and discourse so that a body politic cannot operate on trust. And along, along with it, he graduated to deceiving himself and even attempting, incredibly, to deceive God. For this is what he was doing when he put on the habit of a Franciscan. Now I must move rapidly to the last and deepest dive of all. It was in the eighth of ten pouches. After two more, those of schismatics, the sores of discord, and of falsifiers, Virgil and Dante have come to the edge of the eighth circle and have only one more circle to descend to. But once again, they require assistance because once again, the descent is too steep for mortal limbs. So, and once again, they must call upon a conveyance. It is, in fact, a ride-hailing service, as with Gerion. This time, it's provided by giants whose feet stand in the ninth and lowest circle, but whose upper parts reach to the bottom slope of the eighth. One of these giants, Antaeus, takes them in his massive hand, this is the infernal lift, and sets them down at his feet. Again, this signals, as did Gerion, a significant difference in gravity between the two circles. And yet they have both been classed as fraud. So what's the difference? We need to return briefly to Virgil's discourse in Canto 11. Virgil says, now fraud, which bites at every conscience, can be used on one who puts his faith in you or one who pockets no such confidence. The second, the latter sort of fraud, which is used against others simply, not against others who had a special faith in you, is what we've just been through in Malabolge. But, Virgil continues, the other fraud forgets two bonds of love, one made by nature and one added on, from which a special faith to keep is born. So, at the bottom of the universe, where Satan sits, in the lowest ring of all, traitors are laid to waste eternally. That is where Antaeus now sets down Dante and Virgil. And what we find there, in the ninth circle, at the bottom of the universe, is a lake of ice. Here, encased in ice, lie the traitors. And here we find another fundamental change in punishment and structure. In the circles above, there was great variety 
of punishment. Not all of it fiery, though many, many forms involve fire or heat in some way, but variety has been the constant. Move to another circle or ring, and you encounter a different sort of punishment corresponding to a different sin. And nowhere was that more evident than in the eighth circle. Now the ninth circle, too, has its divisions, four of them. They are named after the four most notable traitors against each kind of added bond or special faith that is betrayed. Kaina, after Cain, those who betray their kin. Antonora, those who betray their city or party from Antonor, a Trojan who in some versions of the tale of the Trojan War is said to have betrayed the city. Ptolemaea, betrayers of guests, to which Ptolemy this refers as disputed, need not concern us here. Finally, Judeca, after Judas, those who betrayed their benefactors. Yet as you go, you'll find the reader can hardly distinguish the transition from one zone to another. There's but one continuous lake of ice, and the only difference in punishment consists in how far encased in ice the sinners are, whether they're able to hold their heads downward, whether their faces are straight ahead, whether they're so far down that their heads have to face up, which means that their tears freeze on their eyes and they cannot see. And then finally, those that are completely submerged within the ice, wholly immobile. That's the only difference. Why this reversal in variegation from all these different sorts in Malabolge to almost a continuum in the ninth circle? I think because at this depth of corruption, we lose the types that fraud had distinguished in Malabolge types of wicked character shaped by the different disorders among goods for man. Now the black bitterness of treachery, not just the corruption of human relation, but the murder of human relation, drags the traitors back towards each other in their character. And this is simply and fitly represented both by the ice itself and the fact that we are now at the bottom of a cone and so being compressed almost to a point. Some say the world will end in fire, some say ice. Said Robert Frost, speaking, I think, of the temporal end of this world, but speaking of the end of the world concentrically, the limit of descent away from light and life and love, fire has altogether too much activity and semblance of life. It must be ice. <clears throat> the last Kanto, <clears throat> the limit of our descent into hell, is the literal and figurative turning point of the journey for the pilgrim Dante. Here is, for Dante and his world, truly the bottom of the universe. For if we conceive, as for so many centuries men did, of the earth as at the center of the cosmos, then the center of the earth where the pilgrim and his guide have now reached is quite literally as low as you can go. It is as far away from the heavens as possible. <laughs> now that's the old pre-Copernican cosmos. But I don't think that change in cosmology need detain us here. It, 
It's a very silly and ignorant notion, I think, that has taken up many minds since Copernicus. And that's the idea that the Copernican revolution, which took the Earth out of the center of the cosmos and made it to move, somehow by that fact demolished a theistic conception of the cosmos by breaking the symmetry and compactness of this spherical cosmos, which showed a designer and the central position of man, which allegedly showed the importance of man in God's eyes and left us floating around in a backwater of the universe, the random byproduct of blind forces. Um, I call that silly for how utterly unserious it is about the God who is spirit, as if magnitude meant anything to him, as if he could love less at light years away than at leagues away, and as if as an artist he were not only anthropomorphic but infantile so that he could only delight in circles. But it's also ignorant in what it supposes that for pre-modern man, this imagined physical centrality meant for them. Did it mean for them that man was very important? No, it was humbling. It was humbling no less than modern cosmology. Man was in the position of the cosmos farthest away from the heavens. What is man that you are mindful of him? Not anything from physical magnitude or position. And that is true in the old view of the cosmos or the new. And perhaps no one before Copernicus ever extracted so much meaning from the humiliating position at the center of the universe as does Dante. The center is not only farthest from the heavens and thus the ultimate terminus of a fall from heaven. It is also the polar opposite of the heavens in terms of motion, while the outermost heavens revolve the fastest, approaching most by their swift motion, the being everywhere at once that belongs to God. The center is the one part that is fixed, immobile, dead. We've seen by now that Dante takes special care with the opening line of a canto that has special importance. The opening line of canto 34, the last of Inferno, is stupendous. And none of it's in Italian, and three-fourths of it is a quotation. Only one word of it is Dante's edition. Vexila regis prodeunt inferni. The banners of the king come forth, the king of hell. Vexila regis prodeunt, you may know, it's a venerable old hymn. In fact, it was already as old for Dante as he is for us, about seven centuries old. For Dante it was, that is. It's still in the old breviaries at Vespers during Holy Week and is often sung on Good Friday. Virgil quotes the opening of this hymn to Dante and then adds inferni, of hell, to prepare Dante for what he's about to see. This is a shocking and, at first blush, blasphemous addition. We'll return to that in just a moment. What we are about to see with Dante, we may have to struggle to see with Dante, I mean with his eyes. We are about to see Satan dis 
the emperor of the woeful kingdom, as Virgil calls him, the beginning of all the sin in creation. And if we are like most modern readers, our first time we may come away disappointed with Dante's portrayal, underwhelmed, at what presumably ought to be the climax of the infernal journey, its greatest challenge, some display of awesome might and intelligence by the angel that was so high among creatures before he fell. Having seen Dante's power in showing craft and cleverness fixed in damnation, as we did with Guido da Montefeltro, a web of words showing pride and the power to deceive as well as self-deception, we may be expecting a tour de force in the same line for Satan. And if we've been influenced by Milton, and who has not, directly or indirectly, is unequaled in shaping how the English-speaking world thinks of Satan, if we ever think of him anymore. If we're influenced by Milton at all, it will only drive the disappointment further. What we want in Satan, as T.S. Eliot put it, is a curly-haired Byronic hero, a tragic hero, a figure almost noble in his grandeur in wickedness. What we get with Dante is an enormous, silent, slavering, disgusting brute. Satan, colossal, dwarfing the giants, is fixed in the ice just below his breast. He has three faces on his hideous head, each of a different color. Beneath each face, a pair of featherless wings extends like gargantuan sails. And as these six wings flap, they send forth the chilling winds that are responsible for the lake of ice, freezing Cassitis, the last of the rivers of hell. He has three mouths in each. He is forever chewing a traitor. In the mouths on the sides, Brutus and Cassius. In the central mouth, with his head inmost, Judas Iscariot. Dante sees him, sees Satan. Virgil points out the three sinners in the three mouths. Dante sees him chewing, clawing, weeping, flapping, and hideously ugly. And then Virgil says, we have seen it all. And he leads the pilgrim towards Satan, between his wings, right up to his chest, and uses his hairy trunk and legs to climb down past the midpoint of the earth to turn around. Dante knew this much about gravity. To turn around and then to climb up, but going in the same direction. So as to find the path by which to climb out of the pit and emerge on the surface of the earth at the opposite side of the earth from which he began. That's how Satan is presented. He never says a word. What are we to make of this? Well, who is Satan and what was his sin? He is an angel, pure intelligence. He had nothing but reason or indeed a mind beyond reason, so intelligent we cannot really comprehend it. He had no body, no passions, no natural appetite for earthly goods that could run to excess or to become a disordered end towards which reason arranged deceptive means. He could not have sinned in the way of all the sins we saw up to and including the Eighth Circle. How could he sin? The tradition calls the sin of the devil pride, and that's what Dante confirms. He says, as he gazes 
upon Lucifer and the ice, if once he was fair as he is ugly now, and raised his brow against his maker still, he well is made the source of every woe. He raised his brow against his maker. That is, he thought more of his own great powers, though they came from his maker, than of his maker's plans. Because the former were his powers to exercise, and the latter, God's plans, he had to humbly receive, just like all the rest of creation. We have seen the various stages of corruption of reason in its connection with other human goods. Here there is nothing left, not even the corruption of speech, but the bare corruption of reason or intellect itself, pure, stripped of all external effects. Nothing left for it to disorder but to turn upon itself and betray its own ordering to its maker. In light of this, we may be more ready to appreciate what Dante has done. I think this canto has a dramatic effect that grows greater with subsequent readings. Whereas with Paradise Lost, with Milton, subsequent readings may make us doubt, as William Blake did, whether the poet was really of the devil's part without knowing it. Oh dear, where's my last page? There it is. <laughs> Let me return to that stupendous opening and draw it into the theme. I called it seeming blasphemous, vexilla regis prodeunt inferni. The hymn vexilla regis is a hymn to the cross, composed by Venantius Fortunatus in the beginning of the seventh century in honor of the discovery and translation of a relic of the true cross. And Virgil, it seems, has adapted it to announce the appearance of Satan. The banners of the king of hell come forth. Presumably, he's referring to his wings as banners, which come forth only insofar as they appear through the mist as he and Dante approach them. The overwhelming irony of this remark has been just too much for many readers. But then many readers have not yet fathomed the reversal that we're truly witnessing. For the irony here does not really start with Virgil. It's there in the original, without inferni, with the original meaning. It's an irony that no poet came up with. Venantius, who wrote that hymn, is not writing ironically, but he's trying to draw out a reversal in reality. It's the irony of the incarnation and passion. It's God's irony in the way that he wrought our redemption. Here's part of Vexilla Regis. The banners of the king come forth. The mystery of the cross shines out, wherein by his flesh the author of flesh was hung upon a gibbet. Now is fulfilled what faithful David sang when he said in song that God shall reign over the nations from a tree. O splendid and beautiful tree, decorated with the king's purple, chosen to touch such holy members with your worthy trunk. What are the banners, the vexilla, that Venantius was talking about? It seems they are the bloody arms of Christ, the purple of the king who reigns from the cross. The vexillum was a military banner, red, hung out by the general's tent to signal the start of battle. That's what it meant in ancient Rome. 
and one of the things it meant. Venantius looked at the cross and saw in those bloody members God reigning. Here is the general. Here is the tent which he pitched among us, the tent of his flesh. Here is the sign, the signal. Here is the battle, and here is the victory. The problem with Milton is not just an anthropomorphic approach to Satan. Poetically, you could justify that. The problem is that he doesn't really have the cross because he doesn't really have Christ. He's an Arian. He thinks that the Son is a creature. And so for him, the battle, which Satan loses, is really a battle in the human way, one creature against another. Yes, he's doomed to defeat because the enemy... His enemy, the Son, has the support of the Almighty. But it's not just a poetic choice. It's a result of debased theology that Milton's Satan comes out as the brilliant general of the bad guys and gains many readers' sympathy. A true theology of the word who is God made man makes the drama very different. Dante's is a truer telling. There are not really two kingdoms facing off, army against army, territory against territory. There is the word through whom all things are, and against him, nothingness. Ice. The free and thinking creature that turns against him destroys his own freedom and thought by devouring them, reducing them to what they are without the word. And thus Satan, in his fall and in his hatred for man, cannot help being used by God's providence for man's salvation. What more fitting punishment for the greatest created intelligence than to be fixed to a body stuck at the center of the universe and unable to speak? And because he is there, he is literally the ladder for Dante's salvation. He's the way Dante gets out. Less literally... In seeing the non-being of sin, its disgustingness, its futility, so clearly, we see that Dante's own eye has been cleared. Yes, Virgil called Satan the emperor, but who really rules here, even at the bottom of hell? Who's in charge? Who is the king in hell? Before him, every knee must bend in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Dante does not permit that sacred name, the name of Jesus Christ, to be uttered in Inferno, and it's fitting so. But that should not prevent us from seeing him here, our Lord here, even at the bottom of hell, in his power and victory through the cross. The canto of Lucifer is full of inverted imagery, of irony, of parody. And if you read it, you'll find much more than I have mentioned. But it does not remain merely parody, merely inverted, because it's flipped again as the pilgrim turns around. It's not just opposed to Christ. It's pointing to Christ and serving Christ, for he has conquered and he reigns. Amen. Thank you. of the hour will probably limit to just three questions. I'm very sorry. Questions?
Yes, thank you very much for your talk. It was great. There were so many insights. Thank you. I have a question about the ordering of the bulges in gates. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that lust is um, earlier in hell in part because it's incontinence. And secondly, it's incontinence towards something in the image and likeness of God. So the thing you're incontinent for is a good object and more noble than other objects you might be incontinent for. And you might think that in, in the fraud section, you might think that the pimps, maybe they would come last then because the thing they're disabusing or you know, abusing is something made in the image and likeness of God. So it's even worse than whatever the astrologists do. So I'm just wondering, what's the what's the decision procedure for why the order Okay, so the, the, the question, if you weren't able to hear, is about the order of the ten bolja in Malabolja. And I'll say right off the bat, I don't think I can give a convincing account of why all ten come exactly in the order that they do. Um, but the question was particularly about the pimps and seducers who are in the first. The question is, why aren't they in the last? Because what they are corrupting was above, in the circle of lust, the lightest, because, correct me if I'm, if I'm not getting the question right, because there's something in the image and likeness of God in the object of lust. So why isn't it worse to abuse that? Well, so yeah, why, why aren't the pimps and seducers at the very, at the very bottom? Um, I guess I would say that the way I'm looking at Malabolja, I tried to, to emphasize, I'm centering it on one principle, which is um, how simply reason is abused. Um, again, I'm not sure I can, I can show how every single one of the 10 goes in a regular order, but it does seem to me that as we go down, we descend from sins in which Reason is the cause of the corruption here, but it's reason that is manipulating this human good for that human good. In the case of the pimps and seducers, it's manipulating what can be a human good, sexual relations, for the sake of gain. Now, that, of course, corrupts them horribly, and that at least explains why this is so much further down and, and endures a greater punishment than the circle of the lustful, the second. But as I'm seeing it, it's lighter when you still have human goods there. That is, the pimps and the seducers at least have this excuse. They were abusing reason, but abusing it about real human goods. As you go further down, the falsity increases. The way that reason is corrupting its own act. And I think we see that in the effect that these sins have. Now, that's, that's not a, going to be a totally satisfying answer. The gravity of a sin is not simply how much effect it has on the world. But Dante's purpose here is also a great deal of invective, such as a prophet gives. And the sins that come lower in Malabolja are often the sins he denounces as making a, causing a pestilence through the whole world. They're corrupting human relations throughout the whole country, throughout 
all of Italy throughout all of Europe. Simony, bribery, false counsel, sowers of discord, those that create civil war. Um, so two-part answer, <laughs> I think. It's worse if the abuse of reason is more naked, if it's more unadulterated as an abuse of reason rather than reason disordering the relation of certain real human goods. And it's lower down if it does more harm if it's more of a corruption in the world as a whole. Um, you talked about going down and then coming out a different, you know, on the other side. Chesterton and uh, St. Francis of Assisi, he, he says he went so far down he came out on the other side. Um, Speak to that, the other side, I mean, how, the pathway out, or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it happens very, very quickly in the poem. There's not much text that covers it. But what we're led to picture in the end is that Dante has descended down an enormous cone, a cone whose um, base is at the surface of the earth, and obviously with some entry point near to Florence, um, and whose point is at the center of the earth. What's at the center of the base of the cone? What is straight up at right angles to the base? Jerusalem. That, Dante tells us um, when we're near the bottom. So. He climbs down with Virgil. Actually, Virgil is carrying him through much of this. It's hard to imagine how Virgil did this. <laughs> Virgil carries Dante, climbing down the, the flank of Lucifer, turns around at the joint where his leg meets the thigh, because that's the center of the universe, <laughs> and now climbs up the rest of his leg and comes out into a little cavern where he says they find by sound, not by sight, the trickle of water. There's a stream that makes a path. And they follow that. And here's where you get just a few lines for what must have taken a long time. They follow that to climb out the whole radius of the earth, to emerge on the side of the earth opposite to Jerusalem. Now, as, as Dante pictured it, his sort of world map, there was roughly one hemisphere covered by land. Not, not exclusively, but there was one hemisphere where all the land was and another hemisphere that was all water. And he gives us the cause of that in, in this canto. When Lucifer fell, <laughs> he fell on that side, the side that is opposite Jerusalem, and the land rushed away from him. <laughs> And he's stuck in the center of the earth. Um, but so that's, it, it, I hope I'm answering the question right. You, you asked me to speak about the climb out to the other side. And what we, what we see in retrospect is that that climb out to the other side leaves Dante and Virgil on the opposite end of the earth, the opposite hemisphere from where they began, in a hemisphere that in Dante's view 
was full of water with one exception, that at the point opposite Jerusalem, there's a great mountain, and that's the mountain of purgatory, and that's where the purgatorio begins. I'm going to pull rank. Sorry. I got a question. <laughs> Uh-oh. Doesn't Odysseus get a... I mean, he gets the bad rap. Homer gets to be in, in uh, limbo, who writes the Odyssey. Come on. Can you defend Odysseus? He brought a war to a conclusion that was killing a lot of people. Yes, he was in the arms of Calypso at night. She's a witch. Uh, he was fighting to get back to Penelope. Homer and Odysseus. Which one was the great poet? <laughs> you got you got to give Dante his prejudices. Father. I'm serious. No. I was trying to dodge. He got, he got a raw deal. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> if I just think of the Odysseus that I know from Homer's poem. I tend to think the same. I would never have seen what Dante tells us coming. I thought of Odysseus not as a good guy in every way, but as, as basically a hero that I was rooting for. And what Dante tells us is that at the end of his life, not content with his homecoming, not content with Penelope, for whom he had waited so long, he was eager for new experiences. Fitting that I just mentioned the hemisphere of water and the mountain of purgatory. What Dante tells us, or what Dante has the soul of Ulysses tell us, is that he persuaded his men in Ithaca to man the ship for one more great voyage, to go where no man has gone before, to sail out the strait, out of the Mediterranean, and into the hemisphere of water, and to keep on going to sail towards the setting sun and to find out what's out there, sort of Columbus. Um, and what does he find? Well, he finds almost, seems to be the mountain of purgatory. He tells us after months and months of sailing, with great joy they sighted land, and then a great storm seemed to come out of that mountain. It spun their ship round, and they all drowned. And here Ulysses is among the, the fraudulent counselors, Dante seems to have put him here because he was a deceiver. Now, again, when I read the Odyssey, I'm, I was never inclined to judge Odysseus's deception the way that Dante does here. But that is how he works. He is the man of many ways, as Homer so often says. That means the man of many wiles. That is the man of many disguises and stories and falsifications of who he really is. And in this last story, which doesn't seem like Dante could easily have gotten from Homer, there's a line or two that you could maybe turn by long extrapolation into a hint of this. But this story, if once we suppose it was a tradition somewhere in between Homer and Dante, I think helps, helps to explain it. If we think that in the after story, after Odysseus got back, he wasn't content. He was restless. And I think we'd start to look at the rest of the Odyssey in a different light. 
all those wiles were not just for the sake of getting home to Penelope. That's what he really loves. <laughs> he really, Ulysses, Odysseus, really loves his own cleverness and experience, wide experience of the whole range of human behavior. That's what Dante has him say to persuade his fellow sailors to go on this doomed voyage and leave Penelope stranded once again and now forever. That's what I've got. <laughs>